Hello, I'm Dr. Judy Puddyfoot, a veterinary surgeon from the UK, and this is the Underdog Vet Podcast, home of the Animal Advocate interviews. Join me as I chat to some truly inspiring people who have dedicated their lives to improving the health and welfare of animals around the world. My guests include a variety of people from vets and campaigners to those who have founded or work for animal charities. But one thing they all have in common with you and I is that they're passionate animal advocates. Dotted in between episodes, I'll throw in some pause for thought, where I talk to you about my personal take on subjects inspired by my work as a vet. Hit subscribe to get notified about new releases. Details on how you can get in touch are at the end of this episode, and I hope you enjoy this latest instalment. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to this episode of the Underdog Vet Podcast. In this episode's Animal Advocate interview, I spoke with Laura Ward, a clinical animal behaviourist who specialises in dog aggression. Laura set up Minds Alike Animal Behaviour after working as a veterinary nurse for 10 years. She has always had a passion for how animals think and feel and now dedicates her time to helping owners solve their dog's behavioural issues. Laura firmly believes in using only positive approaches and that when owners have an understanding of how their dog is feeling, they can then appreciate why they're behaving in the ways they are. Laura and I spoke about the importance of using a qualified dog behaviourist, the difference between a dog behaviourist and a dog trainer, and why it is vital dog owners understand some dog psychology. Laura Ward, dog behaviourist extraordinaire. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Um, it's taken us a while to arrange this for us both to be in the same place at the same time, but we finally managed it and here we are. I wanted to start by asking you to tell us who you are and what it is that you do. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, my name's Laura Ward. I am a clinical animal behaviourist. So a CAB, we're sometimes referred to. Just to give a bit about my background prior to doing that, I was a registered vet nurse for 10 years. So I've been working with animals since I was 17. I worked in general practice and then I went off and, and I worked in emergency care at the Blue Cross doing night shifts. Whilst I was doing that, I also did a part-time degree in applied animal behaviour. So I have a first class honours degree in applied animal behaviour. I carried on vet nursing for a bit after that. And then I started to work part time as a vet nurse and part time as a dog trainer. And the um, behaviour consultations just started to come in hard and fast. So I ended up giving up the vet nursing completely. Um, So for the past 10 years, I have been working as a dog trainer and animal behaviourist. Um, And it was two years ago that I reached the status for uh, clinical animal behaviourist. So for those of you who don't know what that term means, there's an organisation called the ABTC, which is a lovely organisation which is trying to encourage regulation within the behaviour industry and the training industry. So they are kind of like the umbrella organisation which puts in place assessment processes 
and they have a very thorough assessment process standard in place. So if any of the practitioner organisations want to be part of the ABTC, they have to assess their members as per the standard, and it is a very high standard. So to become a clinical animal behaviourist, not only do we generally have a degree, if you don't have a degree, there is a way you can get to that point um, as well, which you could maybe look up online, but you either have to have a degree or a very high standard of knowledge and understanding. And then there is also a practical assessment element where you are observed consulting. So they want to make sure that you are interacting with clients professionally, you are um, advocating the welfare of the dog and following all the latest science that you should be following. So that is the term clinical animal behaviorist. Um, and it's takes quite a few years to get to. So I was very proud when I did. And now I have a busy practice where I am working flat out, seeing lots of dogs with behavior problems, mostly aggression these days. I should say to anyone listening that although this is the first time that you and I have actually spoken, albeit virtually, not actually face to face, you are my local dog behaviorist and trainer. And I do refer a lot of patients to you and I'm ever grateful for that so um, apologies for giving you the workload that you've got but I'm kind of sorry not sorry because you know you make a living and we fix lots of dogs so it's a win-win situation in my mind. You mentioned a lot there about regulation and controlling who can become qualified now why is it so important that you do seek out if you have an issue with your your dog why is it so important that you seek out somebody who is experienced and qualified to help you with your dog because I want to say there's a lot of people out there charlatans who perhaps profess to know a lot about dog behavior and training but perhaps don't. We want to see somebody who is qualified and that to me means somebody who has some academic level of understanding so so they have shown that they have a high level of knowledge and understanding on an academic level or a theoretical level but also I want them to be able to show that they have passed some kind of practical assessment um, which should be quite thorough to ensure that they are going to treat their clients well because in this industry I hear so many clients say to me that they've been bullied by their last dog trainer. They were humiliated. They were deliberately meant to feel awful or feel like it was their fault or, you know, put to the back of the class or um, made an example of within the training session. I hear that a lot. It's just not on. It's it's not okay. And I don't understand how these people make a living. <laughs> but um, they, they do. People still pay them. So, yeah, we, we need to make sure that people are treating their clients in a compassionate way. You know, most people don't hurt their dogs deliberately or go wrong deliberately. You know, also, you know, you, you have to have good people skills for this job. You have to have good communication skills. You have to be able to cater for different people's um, learning needs. Some people are more visual or some people need to be shown or, or do it themselves or whatever. You know, so it's having the ability and the, the knowledge of how to work with people and read people and communicate well. So that should be a, a huge part of the assessment. And then, of course, we also need to know a lot about the species that we're working with. So from an ethological point of view, so their natural behaviour, how do they behave? How should they behave and communicate and, and whatnot? And what are their needs and requirements? And we need to know that they are able to apply the, the practical knowledge that's needed, all the theoretical knowledge that's needed at the time. So we don't want somebody who is 
just going to read from a textbook and spout off a whole load of theoretical stuff when that might not be relevant for the client. It might overwhelm the client. It might make the client feel stupid. You know, it, it, we need to be able to kind of build the puzzle. What is this animal's needs? What is this client's needs? How am I com- going to be compassionate for the client and the animal? Consider both their welfare and and build a, a plan that is going to work for both of them and actually address the problem not just skim over it or mask it. So there should be a high standard of of theoretical knowledge, but there should also be that practical element where you know how to be with people and the, the animal that you're working with. And we are lacking that regulation massively. There are a lot of charlatans out there. Some of them are well meaning and they don't know that they're doing it badly. You don't know what you don't know, right? So they just they don't know that what they're doing isn't the best way of doing it. Some of them maybe don't care they're making money their ego is being boosted by making other people feel small maybe so they they think that's that's great so we we want to make sure that we're looking on a regulatory body like the ABTC when we need help with our animals they have different roles within the ABTC so you can look for an animal training instructor you can look for an animal behavior technician which is more kind of preventative behavior therapy and you can have a clinical animal behaviorist which is generally when things are going a bit more wrong and we need to come in and and deal with quite serious behavioral problems. I think there's a misunderstanding I think amongst the general population it's a misunderstanding in that just how complex and technical understanding dog behavior actually is. Because dogs have been around with humans for thousands of years, there's a human arrogance and therefore an assumption that we understand dogs. They're quite simple. I've got a dog. I've had dogs all my life. I know everything there is to know about dogs. It's fine. I've never had a problem with my dog. And I think that's a problem because that in itself, that attitude causes problems between humans and dogs. But there's this assumption, I think, amongst general dog-owning population that dogs are very simple and they're straightforward and they're very easy to understand because they're very similar to humans on a lot of aspects. But actually, having done some dog behaviour qualifications myself in the past and working with dogs every day at work, actually the psychology alone of dogs and not even going into the body language and the nutrition and the health and (laughs) everything else, the psychology alone of dogs is so complicated and so We rely on professionals like you who have put in the time, the effort and the money to get all that learning and all that understanding and process all of that. And then we trust that you have the ability to then translate all of that very complicated stuff into layman's terms so that regular Joe dog owner can actually understand what on earth you're trying to get them to do and why you're getting them to do it. And I think that's a massive, massive point that people need to understand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also reflected in the fact that it's only really quite recently that we've started to really research dogs. We've been researching wild species for forever because they're in the wild and they're interesting and they're unknown. But there is this kind of, well, dogs are dogs. They live with us. But it's really only in the last 20 years or so that we've really started to research dogs. And it's very interesting research coming out from that. And I would also add I hear the the statement, I've lived with dogs my whole life, or I've always owned dogs, or I've worked with dogs for 20 years. I hear those kind of statements all the time, yet I walk with that client and I just think, wow, look what you've missed over all those years. Because there's so much nuance to to dog behaviour and working with, with dog behaviour. And I just, I think so many people are just 
completely just not seeing what the dogs are saying and communicating. So even with people who 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 think they do know, quite often they they really don't. So that's another reason to call out to a professional because you might get a new perspective if you're struggling. And it's not just a new perspective, it's an educated perspective from somebody who's not only educated, so you've done all the book work, as you say, you've got the theoretical knowledge and you've looked at all the research and you've see, read all the papers, but you've also got that experience that you have for many years put those, that theoretical knowledge into action and you've got results. It works. Yeah. You're the person who does that. So they need you. You know, I say to people many, many times a week at work, there's this great local behaviourist that we've got. I'm going to give you her leaflet. I really, really highly recommend that you, you go and speak to her. If they do go and see you, we then get you telling us, you know, well, can you give us a bit more history, et cetera. So we know the people that come to talk to you because we as professional, two professional bodies have that communication between us. And I would say it's probably 20% of the people that I give a, your number to that then genuinely come and see you. And yet that 80% that don't come and see you, those behavioural problems just run on and on and they escalate often and they get worse and the dog's getting frustrated, which is the bit that really winds me up because I know that dogs that have behavioural issues are really frustrated and I'm the animal's advocate, as you are. So I'm always looking at it from the dog's perspective and I just want these dogs to get the help that they need. But trying to get people to do that can be so difficult sometimes and it's really frustrating. There must be times when you're giving all this advice, spending all this time and effort and invest, investing so much in a client and their dog, and it all kind of falls away because they don't do their homework or they don't take on board what you say. Do you get frustrated by that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can tend to see who is, who's going to get it and who's going to, who's maybe just doing this as a tick box exercise. So a lot of my clients are very good. Um, and one thing that I am very, very passionate about, and I've, I've learned this over the years. Um, and I think other behaviorists who are starting out would, would benefit from hearing this, that follow-up is so important because I can spend time with somebody and I think I've explained it really well. And then I've written them a, a lovely report. And I think that explains it really well. And then I'll see them again and I'll realize, OK, you didn't really get the message. So I really I make follow ups part of my packages. So people have to see me again. Um, I can really spend the time making sure that they do get it. And those that that kind of forces people to be a bit more in invested then. But I, I do think there, there are some people where I can see you're just doing this as a tick box exercise. You're not really actually thinking about implementing this. And I think it's really important to say that not getting it is OK, because I don't know many people that do get it straight away. There are very few people that understand it straight away because for, for multiple reasons, mostly I think because we try and see everything from a human perspective. And it's very difficult for humans to put themselves in another animal's paws, I suppose, <laughs> to see it from their perspective. But genuinely with dog behaviour, you have to see things from the dog's perspective for you to understand what is happening, why it's happening and what needs to happen to make it change. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I think one thing that I see a lot these days um, from the human end of the leash, everybody is so busy, so, so busy. And 
I think a lot of humans that I work with are actually kind of walking around in a bit of a fight or flight mode and and they're 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 too busy they're overwhelmed they're tired they're not getting enough rest themselves the dog behavior problem is just the another thing on top of a mountain of other family problems and you know so people are overwhelmed and this is another reason why you you need to explain things again and again you need to be out with the dogs watching them interact and um being able to show people what you're seeing so they can start to get it on a practical level because yeah not everybody's ready to hear certain things not everybody's able to take it in because of the state of mind that they're in so we do have a bit of a problem in our society at the moment i think everyone's trying to be overproductive and i don't need to tell everyone else that mental health issues have just gone through the roof and i definitely see it with the clients that i work with for sure now, I wanted to go back to you said about you were a veterinary nurse for a number of years before you were a, a behaviourist. What sort of situations did you witness when you worked in veterinary medicine and how were they handled? And what have you learned since then that would lead you to maybe think things could be done differently? When I was in vet practice, I think there was definitely a shift in cooperative care and sort of stress-free handling. It was spoken about much more in cats, though, not in dogs. But just in the last year or so, it's definitely been spoken about more so in dogs, which is fantastic. From when I was in practice, what from what I observed, we certainly could have done more positive reinforcement training. And one thing that I am hoping to find some time to work on is a video series on training that you can do at home to then be taken into the vet practice desensitization programs with nurses which again is a program that I'm hoping to create and from the veterinary staff perspective more use of positive reinforcement a memory that springs to mind here is a vet who actually told a puppy owner a new pet owner and this was probably 12 years ago now but a, a puppy owner cocker spaniel puppy maybe 10 weeks old the owners had reported to that vet that the puppy was aggressive and the vet had just said, put him to sleep. If he's showing that level of aggression at this time, at this age, put him to sleep or send him back to the breeder. You don't want to keep him. And that's really stuck in my mind. I could have spent an hour talking to that family to get to the bottom of why that puppy was being aggressive. And I probably would have discovered that it was the owner's fault and they just needed to tweak a few things. And then the puppy would have learned not to behave that way and it would have all been fine. So. Yeah, I, I've got some some bad memories, but also a lot of good memories of of really caring veterinary work um, where where people are going out their way to try and make a dog um, or cat feel un- really comfortable and being aware of the species and, you know, separate kennels and cattery and making sure the rabbits are further away and everyone's got a hidey place. And, you know, especially from the nursing teams, you know, the nurses really do get on board of making sure that they give the species the best environment possible while they're there. There's also recently we've started to use in the last couple of years uh, something called the chill protocol, um, which is a combination of a couple of drugs, which kind of take the edge off of a dog's anxiety, I suppose is the way to explain it. And I have used that successfully on umpteen occasions. And that really is for the dog that even the owner can't get a muzzle on it. But if they've got the chill protocol on board, they can at least get a muzzle on it so that it's now safe for the animal to come in. And also it's less stressed. 
the dogs that are lunging at you are no longer lunging. They're just looking and staring at you, giving you the eye. So very helpful that somebody's developed this protocol, whoever it was. I thank them eternally. But anyway, I don't want to get stuck in the veterinary medicine thing because we could talk about it forever. You do also offer training to, to vet staff, to dog walkers, doggy daycare people, dog groomers, etc. Are there specifics that are covered for each of these jobs that might differ from, say, what you would tell a dog owner? There are specifics in that um, how I might present it would be slightly different um, because I'm presenting it for their their workplace. But really, I think what I would cover is very similar to what I would cover with with a dog owner. It's about training people's eye to reading subtle body language, the nuance of when to manage versus when are the dogs okay self-managing when to intervene with something and and actually like okay this isn't going well we need to stop this situation from from occurring how to read those subtleties and understand that dogs are really social animals and everything that they do every bit of body language every movement um every change in their speed every change in how their eye contact is directed every lip lick every yawn it all means something and if they can start reading the subtle body language, then they're going to be able to deal with problems earlier on. Um, I pretty much always go through the ladder of aggression, which was developed by Kendall Shepard with anybody I'm talking to, because it's so relevant in greeting behavior, in play behavior and in conflict behavior. You will see the low level signals from the ladder of aggression being displayed. And for any kind of professional to have an understanding of if those signals don't work, where is the dog going to go next? And when they go up the ladder to an aggressive state, what signals have been missed to get there? I just think that's absolutely invaluable. And and it's really important to make sure dogs aren't in situations that they shouldn't be in in these environments. I agree. And, And body language, I'm glad you've brought that up because it is so, so important. I mean, I think... Along with the psychology of dogs, the body language of dogs, those two probably are the fundamentals. If you can get those two things and understand from a dog's perspective, their psychology of what they're thinking and how they're going through the world, how they're viewing their life um, with humans, and you can understand their body language, I think you're more than halfway there to having a fantastic relationship with, with any dog. Absolutely. Um, because if you're if you're reading their body language, then you're hearing them all the time. You're seeing them, you're hearing them. Yes. And I think that's important because I think as humans, because we've developed language, that has become our primary communication. Whereas in the rest of the animal world and dogs, and, and obviously that's the subject of what we're talking about, but obviously they, they are the, probably the species closest to humans of any other species. Body language is still their primary communication method between not only dog on dog communication but dog and human communication and this is why people are always amazed at how well dogs can understand human body language well it's because it's their primary mode of communication but we've let it slip because we now talk so we don't understand body language and that means we don't understand dog body language if you can understand dog body language you are home and dry almost I would say yeah, absolutely. I, I just think it's so, so important. And most of my time is taken up just talking people through body language. But this comes back to my point earlier about how some people are so busy and they're in a very stressed state already. Often they're not they're not present enough to be observing the moment. 
So I'm trying to encourage people to observe moments in time. Um, so imagine the scenario of a dog who's um, reacting to other dogs and we're, go we're going for a walk and I'm talking to a client and they're missing all of these moments in time where their dog is actually doing a great job communicating. I don't want to get involved. I want to distance myself. I want to be over here. And the other dog is communicating, well, I wasn't that interested anyway, so I'm going this way. And then I've got an owner who's in a free state because <laughs> they're so stressed that they think the dog over there is going to come over and they think that their dog is going to want to go over and and maybe attack that dog because they're not reading that moment in time. So a lot of what I do is about teaching people to read the body language so they start to actually rationally analyse, well, what is going on and how much management is needed and are the dogs self-managing? I see so many people where the dogs reportedly are, you know, attacking dogs left, right and centre and very, very aggressive. And I, I go for a walk and we don't have any aggression and we see a dog who's actually just wanting to avoid. And going back to the, the comments about the, the veterinary practice as well, body language can be used in veterinary practice. Um, maybe not if you've got a dog in such a fight state that they're going for you, but if you've just got an anxious dog, maybe they're too anxious to be able to get near them or get the muzzle on or, or examine them, just sit down, get to their level, just sit down with your back turned to them let them come down a notch and then let them explore you and let them explore the clinic room, you know, take the lead off, let them explore the clinic room and then see where that leads to you. And with less invasive handling, you may be able to do that examination bit by bit, just what you need to do without the dog feeling restrained or like the eyes are on them or anything like that. If they turn to look at you, turn your head away. If you notice that they're lip licking or leaning away from you or moving away, give them that freedom to express themselves and do so. And you could maybe back off and just adjust yourself a little bit. And then you can get a dog who's in a fight state or a flight state and bring them down enough to be able to work with them. Yeah, I've been there and I've done it. And you know what? The feeling when you've done it is amazing <laughs> because... You can have a dog, as you say, that, that comes into the room with their owner and they're like, oh, OK, we're here. I didn't realise we were actually here. Right. This is scary now. And they're sat in the corner and they've literally pasted themselves to the wall in the corner. And yeah, I just literally I don't even look at the dog. I mean, my peripheral is watching the dog because I'm not going to take my eye off it. But I'm not looking directly at the dog. I'm talking to the owner in a very calm, nonchalant, you know, so I'm running for a vaccine, any health concerns. I'm thinking about the dog, but I'm talking to the owner. And then I grab the pot of gravy bones. I sit on the floor with that. I start breaking those up and just I'm I'm side on to the dog and I'm just throwing those across the floor towards the dog. Honestly, when you if you there's some dogs you can do that with and they come round as you say they just ratchet it down the fear a little bit and you can see them physically just oh, okay relaxing. Oh my god, it's a wonderful thing oh, to be at one with a dog. Is oh my god, there's nothing better on earth, is there? But anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. What would you say? are the commonest behavioural problems you're seeing in dogs? Um, aggression, definitely number one. We know so much more about dogs, yet why are we seeing such a high level of reactivity? So I spend a lot of time pondering this, this fact, and um, it's, it's ironic as well because most people understand the concept of socialisation. So, you know, socialisation being that critical window where the brain is categorising what is okay and what isn't okay, and we want our young dogs to see lots of people variety of 
environments and traffic and noises and dogs in that time. I think one mistake that we're seeing is that people are kind of assuming that, okay, well, the window's closed, so I'll just stop putting any effort into my dog. I've done my six-week training class and they're past four months, so now this is it, which, of course, is not the case. And if I could rewrite all the textbooks, I'd be saying, well, yeah, okay, you've got this this window of of where the brain is categorizing things and soaking everything up like a sponge, but it's also then got to learn how to put into practice what's already in the dog's genes. So what's already in the dog's DNA is to head turn, lip lick, move away, body turn, diffuse tension using all these signals that we've that are referred to on the ladder of regression. So be a social canine communicate and react to the individuals around you using communication all the time in every moment of time so we've got to start seeing socialization beyond just getting dogs used to things and more into or how do I turn my dog into a social canine how do I help them have enough opportunity to practice conversations with other dogs and people so they learn that this is how it works. This is how when my brain says, maybe you should turn your head right now, it diffused the situation and made both me and the other dog feel calmer. Oh, well, I'll do that again. You know, so and I think it takes like up to 18 months at least for, for dogs to piece it together. And also, if you have a dog who is particularly nervous or a breed who is like makes life particularly difficult, like Border Collies and German Shepherds can sometimes have a hard run of things because their genetics tell them to do all sorts of other things which aren't always that harm. Um, so if you've got a dog who is a bit tricky, then recognising that early on so you can adjust how you socialise them and you can adjust this process. I work with plenty of German Shepherds where we spend the first year and a half not getting any closer than 15 metres to other dogs because by the point that the owners come to see me, which is normally sort of around eight months, the German Shepherd started being reactive. They've started barking or jumping on the other dog and being inappropriate. So they've started to reel them in and keep away from dogs, which is the worst thing they could do. What they need to do is expose the dog, keep socialising the dog, but in the right way, with distance, with management, with a long line, helping them continue to have those interactions, but in a managed way so they can learn it and they can get it right. And so they need a specialized approach. And that's why getting early help is so, so important. So aggression is probably the number one thing I'm seeing and reactivity. And that's that's down to people not not getting enough specialized guidance with with how to do that not being able to read body language and appreciating how much is going on in terms of communication with their dog and also a lack of management. So there's been this kind of change in in trend with, with dog ownership where the dogs are given a much more kind of permissive lifestyle of, well, you're on your walk now, so off you go and cause all sorts of mayhem. But those young dogs aren't learning how to converse properly. They're not learning how to use their body language properly. So then they're growing into adults that are lunatics and um, causing other dogs to feel uncomfortable, which then means they get snapped at and then they become reactive. And so we have this cycle. We, we need to manage our dogs and appreciate the intricacies of their body language so we can help raise social canines that are going to get it right and they're going to read when is it time to stop and when is it time to move on and how to use their body language and it's not just about letting your dog off for a good old play 
So I think there's more of that going on, which is creating more dog on dog issues. And then the other thing, of course, is lockdown, where I've seen more dogs who are aggressive towards vets or in relation to handling. And that's partly because they've come from questionable backgrounds like puppy farms. So they haven't had daily human contact from the beginning, which is what they should have when they're sort of at the breeders. And also lockdown, you didn't have any visitors. So I'm seeing way more aggression towards people in the home from dogs that you would expect should be fine. Like, you know, your cockapoos and and things like that, you know, dogs that, that should have had plenty of contact and, and would have otherwise been fine. But lockdown meant that they couldn't. So, yeah, much more reactivity towards towards people in the home and also lack of the ability to reach professional help. If they attend puppy classes, they are far less likely to be seen a behaviourist later on. You touched on lots of different things there that that I was going to talk about. So, so one of them is how much of the dog behaviour problems you're seeing are due to, human, let's say, human-related factors, like a lack of knowledge, et cetera, or lack of experience, and how much is related to breed predisposition? Because you mentioned there about some breeds have certain genetic drives, et cetera. So how would you proportion it to breed versus human related factors oh that's a good question <laughs> i would probably say 70 percent human related factors 30 percent breed and the reason i say that is because we've we've you know in the 80s german shepherds were very popular border collies were very popular golden retrievers were very popular they're all breeds that can be quite hard work and, and need a lot of input but i think everybody managed <laughs> maybe better than we are now i do think the kind of prevalence of the poodle crosses has potentially increased behavior problems statistically because people are getting a lot of these dogs thinking that they're the perfect family pet because they're hypoallergenic and they're you know small and ideal for young children and and, and whatnot but sometimes they are a perfect blend of let's say cocker spaniel and, and poodle but sometimes they are and they they're calm and they're, they're the ideal size and they are brilliant family pets but sometimes you've got far more cocker spaniel traits than you bargained for and then you've got a working dog and you might not have been expecting to have a working dog or they might have um more poodle traits which might make them more nervous and cocker spaniels can be pretty nervous and touch sensitive as well so i see i see a lot of touch sensitivity issues which leads to handling aggression and that kind of thing and and also resource guarding in these breeds um spaniel cross breeds so yeah i i do think there's a genetic basis of of some families are getting the wrong breeds and they're not appreciating how much input they need and what work should go into them. And it's so frustrating as a trainer when you see a dog who is just fantastic, but you can just see that they're not appreciated. It's not appreciated how fantastic they are because you're just being moaned at that your dog won't sit still or the dog wants to be busy. And you're like, well, yeah, he's a working dog. He does want to be busy. Again, maybe during lockdown, more people got dogs that wouldn't have got dogs otherwise so that's part of part of it as well but I, I would still say the majority of the issue is more human understanding because we've always owned dogs which can be difficult that's not new it's just a different kind of dog we're owning now I think you're right and, and I think you know sometimes the perfect storm is the wrong breed 
or breed mix with the wrong personality of person or the wrong type of person and be that an inexperienced person or somebody who perhaps isn't necessarily what's traditionally termed a doggy person you know a dog person they perhaps never had a dog before and as you said perhaps might not have ever entertained the idea of having a dog until lockdown and now all of a sudden they want a dog and most of them go out and get like you said perhaps not the breed or the type of dog that that really is going to be the most amenable to their level of understanding and experience let's say it's difficult talking about that what would you say are, are common mistakes that dog owners make when they're when they're training their puppies that that could then lead on to behavioral issues later so give me your five top tips for what people should and shouldn't do with their puppies okay so they should socialize them and they should appreciate that that extends beyond four months and it's actually about teaching them how to and giving them learning opportunity to be the best dog that they can be and that might require a bit of management so yeah they should socialize they should continue socializing beyond the four-month window they should do plenty of handling training another thing that's completely underused um because everyone's keen when they first got the puppy and they do it when they're attending puppy class and things but then it just sort of drifts off and gets forgotten but actually the amount of handling training that's that's required is never enough really what would be my next two top tips what you should do um i think you should select the right diet for your dog and that's a mindful in its own and i'll let you do another podcast on that (laughs) well actually i'd be interested to hear what do you mean by that Okay, so disclaimer, first of all, as a behaviourist, I'm not allowed to give out nutritional advice that needs to come from the vet or a qualified nutritionist. So I'm very careful about the advice that I, I give, but I do find it very frustrating that there's little independent research in what is good for dogs and what isn't good for dogs. I'm going to just put the whole raw thing to the side. There is a fair amount of research about why raw might not be sensible. And there's lots of people that obviously would disagree with that. But in terms of um, cooked or processed dog foods, in my mind, there's sort of two types. There's grain free or or there's, um, I don't know. Grain inclusive. (laughs) Grain inclusive, right. (laughs) There we go. Some people would class it as, is it high protein, low carb, or is is there more carbohydrate in it? And this is where it becomes a bit of a mindful. And I really think it would be quite easy to just do some research and get some conclusive advice here. But because obviously you need to fund research, it's funded by big companies and and whatnot. So it all ends up being a bit biased. So often I have people say to me, somebody said I should feed a low protein diet. And from a behavioral perspective, I see more issue with some of the diets which are filled with, with filler like maize so starchy high carb diets normally they've got meat and animal derivatives is what their protein is it's they don't know what's gone in it basically um so i tend to avoid diets like that but then you end up what's your options that you could find a a good kind of animal protein and brown rice mixture or you can go grain free and i think grain free then has come with its own stigma and there's issues with with certain things which might cause heart disease and like so it's just it's a minefield so I d- I'm not surprised that owners are struggling it is a bit of a minefield I agree and I'm, I'm glad you put the the can of raw food because that is a can of worms let's just put that to one side that's a whole podcast on its own 
I think some generalities here for people, because obviously what you've just said might be making people go, oh, what? Hang on. I need to just research this a little bit more and I need to think about what I'm feeding my dog. And yes, you do need to think about what you're feeding your dog. Absolutely. And get some advice on it. And it is a, a massively inflammatory subject amongst vets and dog owners. So I'm going to try not to inflame it anymore. But some universal truths about dog food are as a generality, you tend to get what you pay for in terms of quality of ingredient. And, and what I mean by the quality of ingredient is the protein source. So like you mentioned about, you know, meat derivative, I suppose, is the stuff that, you know, scrapes off the bones that goes into make chicken nuggets. That's the sort of level of quality protein we're looking at. Whereas if you've got on the ingredients, you know, it contains X percent of chicken. Legally, the UK laws, you have to have that percent of chicken in it. So you kind of get what you pay for in terms of the quality of the protein and the source of that protein. It's chicken nuggets versus a chicken breast. Essentially, you get what you pay for. I'm going to say one thing about grain free. There is research to prove that in some dogs, grain free diets have been associated with the development of heart, certain heart conditions. And I will put the link to that research on the bottom of this podcast so people can have a look at that themselves. But I'm not going to say any more about nutrition and dog food because you're right, it's massively contentious and I'm not going to get into an argument and get on on abuse about it. And I don't want you to either. We'll move on. We were just talking about puppies and training, etc. I wanted to ask you your opinion. What sort of puppy training would you recommend to, to puppy owners and dog owners, not just puppies, to, to anyone who's getting a dog? Because a lot of people rehome dogs that are older, which is great. There's lots of different types out there. There's one-on-one, there's classes, but there's also boarding establishments, sometimes where the owners don't even attend with their dogs. What are your opinions on those three types of training of dogs? Okay, so I am a massive fan of group classes when they're done well. I think especially when you've you've got a puppy, it's, it's just an ideal place for them to socialise. In our group classes, we never let the puppies off lead to play because it could be mayhem. One puppy could end up being victimised while other puppies learn to be bullies. So, you know, we know we're not going to be able to recall in that situation, so we don't do it. But we do let them socialise on lead. And by doing that, we can start to tutor owners in how to handle the lead, how to keep it soft and relaxed, how to not get in a tangle, when to move on, when to stay, what is okay and what isn't okay interaction. And we can also start talking about body language. We've got real puppies in front of us to, to commentate on. We have a structure, you know, a six week structure of going through certain exercises, which are our basic exercises um, needed, and then they can follow on with further classes. But I, I just think that kind of that working with like minded people, the puppies get to see more people and, and dogs and work with distraction straight away as well. So I 100 percent think classes are a great way to start. It's not right for every dog. And and normally that as a puppy, it's because I think the class would be badly run. Like maybe it's in inside with too many dogs or outside with too many dogs. There's there's just too much going on. Maybe the instructor is not very nice to the dogs or not very nice to the people or, or you know, trying to set things up too difficult or whatever. But if your puppy doesn't get on well in puppy class, 
then I just I'd be reflecting on, well, what's going on with that class and how could that instructor help a bit better? If it's an older dog, like a rescue dog, for example, or, or a puppy who's missed out in early training, which happened with lockdown. You know, we had a whole generation of puppies that didn't get to do puppy training. They had to come in as an adult or an adolescent. And we actually had to lower our standard of training. <laughs> we had to kind of rewrite the syllabus because they weren't getting it as quickly as the puppies would have. Um, so we, we did have to make some adjustments back then so yeah I think really important if you can to get onto a group class if it's an older rescue dog it might be better to start with a one-to-one get some good advice and assessment on where are they at what do they need what do we need to prioritize how confident are they you know because I think a lot of people don't appreciate how much decompressing a rescue dog might have to do you know, that sometimes when people call me and they've had a dog for two weeks and they want to book onto classes, I'm always sort of like, well, this hang on a minute. Let's just because behavior problems come out the woodwork. And especially if if anybody says I want to attend classes because my dog is barking at other dogs, that's a sign for me. No, <laughs> that's not the right place to start. So, yeah, generally group training is great. If not, the one to one is fantastic. That might suit some people better because of scheduling and things like that. And it means that the trainer can prioritise what you need and get working on that straight away. Residential training, again, I don't want to be disparaging to all residential trainers because that's not my intention at all. But in my experience, most residential trainers are looking for quick fixes. So it's highly likely if you send your dog to residential training that they are going to use methods which apply pressure maybe pain maybe a tiny bit of fear or anxiety apply pressure in order to make the dog want to stop doing the behavior or avoid further pressure and it gets results they're very skilled at what they do and it does get results but what they are doing is they are applying positive punishment so that pressure that they're applying is a punisher and then the dog is learning by avoiding the punisher and then the kind of the only reinforcement that happens there is the punisher stops and that's not a very nice way to learn um in my opinion you know so i see a lot of dogs who have gone off to residential and come back worse or they've come back and they've been very well behaved for a period of time and then it's gone downhill again and the reason it's gone downhill is because the owner has not continued to apply that punisher so eventually the dogs sort of learn well actually my old pattern of behavior was all right and better for me so I'll do that again and because that owner has had no information on body language thresholds stress stress responses what can the dog cope with or not cope with emotions why are they doing what they're doing? You know, they, they've had no information about that. And that's really a big difference between a trainer and a behaviorist. A trainer wants to fix a problem or, or change a pattern of behavior by training something new, which could be walking to heel or changing direction. But a behaviorist wants to tell you how the dog would want to manage themselves naturally and, and how they use their body language to, to, to deal with the situation. It's it's really hard because there's so much nuance to it. It's easier for people to hear a black and white. Well, if you see a dog, change direction, give them a treat, job done. Or or if your dog barks at a dog, yank them, they stop, change direction. You know, that's black and white and much easier for some people to understand. But in the long term, you're not going to actually desensitize the dog to the thing that they're scared of. And you're not going to counter their fearful response and actually change their emotional mindset about that trigger. So 
on a whole, I, I would avoid residential. Um, there are a couple of ones which are reward based. You know, do, do your research, go and watch them train for a number of sessions and think, do I want this to be what happens with my dog? I think what you said there about the difference between trainers and behaviorists just brings us back full circle to where we started this conversation with why it's so important to go and speak to a qualified professional dog behaviorist because essentially you are the translators between canine and human and you're going to teach the humans how to understand canine and you mentioned there about obviously some training methods are quick fix and that's often because there's certain stress or pressure or negative things added to the dog's environment positive punishment as it's called and I think I don't want to be at risk of anthropomorphizing dogs, but there are certain elements of dog behaviorism that you you can uh, extrapolate from in, in, into human terms. They're absolutely right. You can't deny that. And one thing that I say to people is you've got to understand, and you know this as a human, if you were at school or somebody was trying to teach you something and the teacher is keep saying to you, my God, come on, why can't you understand this? It's so simple. Get on, come on. You're going to be fearful. You're going to be scared. And fear blocks learning. Whoever learned anything because somebody was standing over their shoulder, breathing down their neck. Is that how you learn? No, nobody learns well under that type of pressure. So that's why if you can have a positive environment where it's, no, it's okay, it's fine. I know you don't get it. Let's try and do it this way, maybe. you know, And you feel a lot more comfortable with that and you're happier. It is to do with emotions. If you're fearful and scared, you're not going to learn. If you're happy and comfortable, you're going to learn. That's the fundamentals of how you train and treat a dog during training and behavior. The quick fixes that you, you talked about, the way I sometimes describe this to, to owners, and, and I'm all about analogies. I love an analogy because it's a bit like a corset. <laughs> You've got a problem somewhere. You put a corset on it. That problem's gone away. But you know what? It's popped out somewhere else. And that's very much how dog behavior problems are. You think you fixed that one problem because it's gone away. Oh, look, now the dog's doing this behavior problem. Well, that's because you've not actually got to the root cause of the problem and fixed it properly. You've tried to do a quick fix. You put a Band-Aid on it. And as you say, that works temporarily. And it's also not very nice for the dog in the short term, but it won't work in the long term. It brings me on nicely to the council to ask you about, about quick fixes. And I think there are many people who are guilty of wanting a quick fix for their dog's behavior problems. And we see plenty of TV shows with some very good dog trainers and behaviorists, but they seem to portray a quick fix, overnight fix. Do you think that has got into the psyche of dog owners now that, well, so-and-so does it on telly and he fixed it overnight. She fixed it in two days. So why can't you? Does that put extra pressure on you as a behaviorist? Absolutely. I mean, if I hear the words, I watch dogs behaving badly. I was trying to imitate what Graham was doing and blah, blah, blah. If I hear those words again, oh my God, it's just, it's a bit soul destroying because, you know, we as an industry, we're working hard to work towards regulation. And actually a lot of the people that are celebrities in these programs are not qualified to really be dealing with the problems that they're dealing with, giving out the advice that they're giving out, but they have this massive reach and the programs are heavily edited and it's always the same scenario. You know, they have a clip of the dog being awful lunging and barking and like this is how awful it was and I had a clip of the end where the dog's walking on a lead and trotting along 
but again it's generally it's it's training it's not behavior it's training in that it's just masking a problem or it's suppressing a problem but they're not talking about emotions enough and veterinary history and medical history and how pain might be impacting behavior or learning has impacted that behavior or how actually the handling of the lead has made it so much worse. And it, it's just making out that oh, the dog was doing something wrong. So we yanked it a bit or did as Susan Milan does the, the bite thing and the noise and that kind of thing. And, and then the dogs just miraculously stopped doing everything. And they're very skilled at applying because what they're doing is they're applying a punisher it's a positive punishment and then the dog wants to avoid that punishment happening again so they maybe don't do that behavior and these tv trainers they're very skilled at applying the punisher at just the right time at the right level and it often is very effective in the short term but what makes it non-effective in the long term is the fact that the dog's emotions haven't changed regarding the trigger. The fact that the owner has not been educated about emotions and body language and the dog's threshold and stress responses and, and how to actually, you know, get the best out of their dog by understanding all those things. So they're missing a huge variety of factors, which um, I think it's very dangerous it's it's leading people down a garden path that that's led to many owners that I've seen anyway, trying to apply these these punitive methods. And the dog has got worse. They've become more fearful or they just stayed the same. And that could result in somebody being bitten. So I implore anybody who might be in TV production to really focus on when you you get people in to do programs try and get people who are really qualified and give a nice big balanced view of a subject yeah I'm not sure if tv production kind of goes with what I do sometimes when I train I don't even I don't look like I'm training anything I look like I'm just going for a walk with a dog but like I said you know the amount of times that I've I've had a dog who's reportedly very aggressive and then we go for a walk and we don't see any aggression. We see a lot of very good communication and we manage the the space and the dog's threshold to make sure that they don't go over threshold and then we don't have any reactivity. And if you filmed it, it would look boring. So no one's going to. <laughs> um, and that's the sad thing about it, I suppose. I, I think you're right. It, it makes good TV because they know how they're editing it. They like a bit of jeopardy and they like a good result. They like a, a beginning, a middle and an end that can all be squished into 45 minutes that's also entertaining. All I'm going to say is well, I'm going to go back to the corset analogy. It's not going to work long term. It's interesting you mentioned Caesar Milan there. I was uh, away in Spain recently and came back to the hotel room, popped pop the telly on and there was an episode of, of his show on. And it was in Spanish. I couldn't understand what they were saying. No subtitles. Even without the language, I was furious, <laughs> furious watching him. And I was screaming at the telly, look at the dog's body language. Look, the dog is absolutely terrified of him. I failed to understand how anyone's gut instinct is telling them that what this man does is correct. It's, it's amazing. Anyway, I'm going to end on something a bit more positive, hopefully. Dogs undoubtedly bring so much joy to our lives. Are there any special behavioural success cases that you remember that really stand out for you that you'd like to tell us about? I've seen a lot in the last year. That's a big question. Oh, there's, so, there's so many that stand out to me, but I think the one that I would like to talk about is a dog reactivity case where 
the advice that had been given had resulted in a prong collar, had resulted in an e-collar. And this was off the back of a, a trainer who is very well known at the moment. He's just released a book. I'm not sure if I should say his name, um, but it kind of highlights the problem to me of social media and how social media has the power to fuel popularity with somebody who who is very controversial. And that seems to fuel the popularity more. And, uh, you know, they end up very, very, very successful. But again, are they qualified? Are they, you know, are they really doing the right things? These clients went to that person based on popularity and thought, oh, this person must be good, must know what they're doing. And it ended up with a session with many, many dogs in the same field. And they were trying to work on dog reactivity. So, of course, the dog's already completely over threshold. And the emotions of the dog has not been considered. The body language have not been discussed. And the idea is to train the dog not to be reactive. And they were doing so via a prong collar. So for anyone not aware, a prong collar is, is a collar which sort of spikes into the dog's neck when it's pulled, causes pain. So it's an effective tool at applying punishment to suppress a behaviour. The prong collar did not work, so the trainer escalated to an e-collar. But of course, I know the dog was in an environment that was just completely inappropriate and not going to work for that problem at all. Unfortunately, this dog also became very human aggressive. So an example being the couple left the the dog with their father um, while they went off to be out for the evening for a meal. And this dog ended up pinning this um poor bloke at the in the hallway for an hour and a half he literally could not move because the dog was barking and lunging and and going to bite him if he did so he just had to kind of stay put and wait for the couple to arrive home now one change that made a huge amount of difference for this dog and of course the the prong collar and the e collar were abandoned but one thing that made a huge difference for this dog was increasing sleep and opportunity for rest because that's just a huge thing that's overlooked many times when I see behaviour problems, a lack of rest is is a problem. And what was happening with this dog is he was settling down for the night and then he was being asked to get up and go out to the toilet at 10 o'clock at night, um, which is then waking him up and breaking his sleep cycle and causing all sorts of disruption to his mind. So one of the triggers for aggression was anybody coming towards him in the evening putting him on lead. Um, and in this case, where he was at the the dad's house being babysat, the lead was trailing and the instructions to the father was not to let go of that lead. You hold onto the lead for the entire evening. So when you, he needs the toilet, you've, you've already got it and you haven't got that case of guarding the lead and preventing anyone from getting it. But this, this guy did let go of the lead and then he had to go pick it up. And that is what triggered the dog to go into an aggressive state and not let him leave the hallway for an hour and a half. So one of the changes that was made there, very, very simple, was he, he was crate trained, put him to bed at eight o'clock. He doesn't need a 10 p.m. toilet break. He's already done his stuff. He's now asleep. So they've just started putting him to bed at eight o'clock then they don't have to have the lead on. There's no reason for lead guarding. They've had no aggression in the house since. So it just shows what small changes can make huge differences. We've also been working on dog reactivity and we've been working on keeping the dog under threshold. So at a suitable distance from the other dogs and we are rewarding him whenever he makes a good choice. So if he looks at the dog, good treat. 
if he looks at the dog and looks away good treat if he actively moves away from a dog good treat you know just any good choice that he makes any communicative signal from the low end of the ladder of aggression he is rewarded for that also means he's getting a ton of reward around dogs so working on that principle he is improving his reactivity is lowering he's still got a way to go and we still need to sort of muzzle train him and deal with you know handling issues at the vets and there's still a list of things that we need to go through but this was a dog who would have been considered very dangerous and unsuitable for home life and things like that if we hadn't had that kind of consultation process where we looked at the emotions and the body language and how to manage him and and made those tweaks and then realized what is going to work best in reducing aggression in the interim and putting safety first so yeah that that's a case that springs to mind that has been very rewarding because he's come from such a bad place so aggressive to a very good place fairly quickly I think it's always so important to remember the takeaway messages are dogs do have emotions and it's important that we understand their emotional state, both during when they're experiencing the behaviour problem as we see it, that they're having, but also that everything a dog does is done for a reason. We just have to find what the reason is. Yep. If there's anything else you want to say to end it on, now's your opportunity. No, I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot. We have, and there's so much more we could have talked about. I've not even asked your opinion on, should everybody who gets a puppy train them to wear a muzzle? What do you think about clicker training? Do you think that people who say, I'm not going to give my dog loads of chicken because it will get fat? There's so much we could have spoken about, but maybe you can come on in another season and we'll talk about all that other stuff as well. But yeah. in the meantime, Laura Ward from Minds Alike for coming on. It's been absolutely fantastic talking to you and I really, really appreciate you giving up your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you do want to get in touch with me, then you can simply email me on theunderdogvetpodcast at gmail.com or get in touch via Instagram, where you'll find me as, yes, theunderdogvetpodcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe via your favourite platform. And please note that the Underdog Vet podcast is entirely independent. It's just me, Dr Judy Puddyfoot, speaking as an individual. No affiliations with any organisations, charity or businesses are made or implied unless I specifically mention it.